I thought, this will be fun. We're going to go ahead into the rec league, and we're going to do that. But every single week that we'd get there, the same thing would happen. We'd be sitting there, and we'd be tying on our shoes, and we would remember that our center is like 6'2", and that their whole team, as we looked over, was at least 6'2". And we realized that it was going to be a tough go because they were much, much bigger than us. One particular night, I looked over and saw something that made me want to puke. I looked over, and the center for the other team was like 6'6", 350 pounds. And let me tell you, he was a skilled 6'6", 350 pounds. He knew what he was doing. So I watched for the first few minutes of the game as anybody guarding him sort of like got tossed about like a paper bag. And I recognized that in just a few minutes, Eric Brown's going to look at me and go, and I'm going to go, no, no, that guy's huge. And so I, I began to like get myself amped up in my mind, like, I, 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 this guy is good, he's scoring, he's doing a really good job, I am not good, I don't score, I don't do a good job, and he is a giant. And so I thought, you know what, I can either be terrified of this situation, or I can go in and have some fun. So a few minutes later, when Eric came over and went, and I said, oh, okay, I ran in there, and there was that 6'6 behemoth, and... I thought, you know what, I'm going to stand right up to this guy. So I stood up to him face to face and looked him right in the belly button. And I said, <laughs> I said, they sent me out here to teach you how to play basketball. <laughs> and you know what he did? He went, <laughs> but you know what happened? You're going to say, you scored. No, I didn't score. I only scored like in two games. But anyhow, that guy took it easy on me. I think the fact that I broke the ice and made him laugh, and I kept pushing him and giving him a hard time, and when he'd get a rebound, I said that he went over the back. All he did was go like this. But anyhow, uh, I just kept messing with the guy, and he took it easy on me. You know, I faced the giant, and it really wasn't as big a giant as I imagined him to be. It ended up being okay, and I didn't completely make a fool out of myself. You know what? Fear is such a legitimate thing, isn't it? especially when you're 5'11 and have no basketball skill and the 6'6 guy who's a pretty good shooter and a, and a pretty good rebounder is the guy you're facing. Fear is usually somewhat legitimate. The truth about fear is that it's normal. If you're on a battlefield, you might fear for your safety. If you're starting a new grade or at a new school, you're going to fear the unknown. If you're in a competitive business, you might fear for your company's future. If you're in a church that teaches biblical ethics, you might fear cultural change. These are all normal fears. But the truth is, heroes and cowards both have fears. But heroes find a way to overcome them. Heroes find a way to overcome them. Now, it's not a stretch to say that much of the Bible is the story of men and women overcoming fear by their trust in God. That's much of many of the stories of the Bible. And it's not a stretch to say that men and women who overcame their fears by trusting in God are men and women who built the church of Jesus Christ. They're the ones who built Israel to give us the place from which salvation would come, and they were the ones who built the church of Jesus Christ because they overcame their fears by trusting in God. For the world without Christ, the opposite of fear is courage. For the Christian man or woman... The opposite of fear is faith. Because courage tells us, just get tough, just get strong, get ready to go out there and do that thing that you fear. Faith tells us, 
I am right where God has me, and I'm going to step into this because he's brought me to this place, and he is going to bring me through. That's the difference between the world's fear and our fear. The world's fear says, get tough. Our fear says, have faith in God. He's brought you to this place for a reason. We as Christians, we don't claim some inner strength when we stand up to our fear. We claim our Lord Jesus Christ to overcome our fear. As the psalmist once wrote, my strength and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In essence, I may stink, but God doesn't. I may have a rough time doing what I need to do, but God is ready to help me through it. The neat thing about fear and faith is that although they are opposites, they share two major properties. Fear and faith are both contagious, are they not? Fear and faith are both contagious. I've been on basketball teams over the years where we know that we're completely outmatched. And the first person to say something like, oh, we're doomed, has put us in a place where we're all going, yeah, we're doomed. But I've also been in sporting situations where we're completely outmatched, and we realize that, and the first thing we do is we get in the huddle and somebody goes, look at those smug guys over there. They think they've got it in the bag. Well, we're going to show them something, aren't we? We're like, yeah, we are. We're going to go out there and beat them. Sometimes you do. Because someone in the group had faith. They're both contagious, both fear and faith. Also, faith and fear share a property in that they can be, they usually are, the primary source of our motivation. The things that we don't do that we know we ought to are driven by fear. Some fear that's in the back of our mind that, or maybe in the front of our mind, that we don't want to recognize, we don't want to realize in real time, and so we don't do what we know we ought to do. But faith can also be the primary motivation. And people whose primary motivation is faith, they get a lot done on this earth. They accomplish a little bit. Because when we have faith, and when it is our primary motivation... We don't leave this earth going, boy, was I courageous. We leave this earth going, boy, was God powerful, and did he display it. God wants to display his power through our faith. It's not a stretch to say that that's one of the themes of the scripture. But before we get to faith, I think it's important that we look at the symptoms of fear. Because if we just go, all right, Pastor Matt wants me to have faith, so when I leave here, I'm going to go, God, I have faith in you, and then I'm going to drive my car off a cliff and see what happens. That is not what we're going for. We have to recognize that we are still reasonable human beings, that our life has brought us to places that cause both rational and irrational fear, and today we want to diagnose the symptoms of fear so we can begin to get over them. I want to tell you a story today, and we're going to go through Numbers 13 and 14. We're not going to read every verse, because if we did, we'd be here all afternoon. But what we want to do is we want to talk about a story where people were ruled by their fear, and see if we can diagnose some of the symptoms of that fear, and then how we might overcome them, insofar as their fear mirrors our own. Are you in Numbers chapter 13? Let's read the first two verses, and then we'll back up and do a little bit of a history lesson. The Lord said to Moses... Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelites. From each of their ancestral tribes, you shall send a man, every one a leader among them. Now just stop right there. So here we have Moses and the entire group of the Israelites. These were the people who had once been enslaved in Egypt. 
And they were still in their 12 tribes that were the sons of Jacob. They were still in their tribal groups. And one man of each tribal group is now going to go into the promised land to begin to spy it out. So what's happened between their slavery in Egypt and this moment? Well, a lot. Of course, we know that Moses had gone to Pharaoh and given Pharaoh God's emancipation proclamation, right? Let my people go. Pharaoh would not. Pharaoh considered himself God, and God showed him who God was. And through the ten plagues, he made it so that when the Israelites were going to be set free, the Egyptians wanted to see them go so bad that they were throwing money and animals and clothing and jewelry at them, saying, get out of here. In essence, not only did God form a people, but he had done so and made them rich in the process by sending them out. Of course, we know that one of the greatest events in the history of God's dealings with his people happened at the Red Sea. With their backs against the Red Sea, Pharaoh reneging on his promise, he wants to come and take his slaves back. God parts the Red Sea and allows the Israelites to go through on dry land and destroys the army of Pharaoh. They had gone out into the desert, and if things couldn't get any worse, they got worse. They were attacked by the Amalekites, nomadic people who lived in the Sinai Peninsula. And the Amalekites attack them as they're leaving Egypt. And that was the great story of Aaron and Hur holding up Moses' arms. And as long as Moses' arms were in the air, the Israelites were winning. And when his arms began to falter, they began to lose. So they held his arms up, and God helped them defeat the Amalekites, even though they were far from a warlike people. They'd been slaves their whole life. They needed something to drink. God gave them water. They needed something to eat. God gave them manna. They weren't satisfied with that. God gave them quail. And finally, he brought them to Sinai, and he let his presence rest on the mountain. And he gave them their identity as a people. He called them out to be his people. He gave them the law of Moses, and they had accepted it. Quite a turn of events to take place over the course of 14 months, but that's what had happened. They had seen God move in their lives time and time again, and now it was going to be the culmination of the journey Go into the land that was promised to our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Go into the land that we have talked about even when we were slaves and really didn't have a hope of being free, really didn't have a hope of becoming a nation, really didn't even know how God was going to get us there, but we've been raised on the stories that the land of Canaan will become our land, a land flowing with milk and honey. It has been promised to us by God. So they've got their identity as a people. They've seen God's goodness. They're trained and they're ready to go. And God says, Moses, send out spies into the land. It's time for a reconnaissance mission. And Moses does it. And of course, he wants the 12 tribes to all be represented. So a leader from all 12 of the tribes go out as spies into the land. Now, I want you to skip down, if you will, to verse 25. Let's get the report of the reconnaissance mission. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron to all the congregation of the Israelites in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, Moses, we we came to the land to which you sent us, and it flows with milk and honey. And this is his fruit. They'd carried a, 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 a pole with all types of grapes on it. Yet the people who live in the land are strong, and the towns are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Enoch there. Now just stop there for just a minute, and we're going to pick up in verse 30. 
So they go before the congregation and they say, look at this beautiful grapevine, look at the fruit of the land. And then it seems that they have a private audience with Moses because it says they showed it to the congregation, but then they spoke with Moses, they spoke with him. And they said, you know what, this land is beautiful, it does, it flows with milk and honey, it it, it looks a lot better than the wilderness we're sitting in right now. But Moses were a little bit concerned because the descendants of Anak are there, Anak in the ancient language means the long-necked one necked he's got a long neck meaning he's t- they're tall there's tall people there and moses and listens and then they go out to the congregation they go out to the assembled people of israel in verse 30 caleb who you've probably heard of before quieted the people before moses and he said let us go up at once and occupy it for we are able to overcome it then the men who had gone up with him said We're not able to go up against this people, for they're stronger than we. So they brought the Israelites an unfavorable report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land that we have gone through as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw there, all the people we we saw there were of great size. There we saw the Nephilim. The Anakites come from the Nephilim. And to ourselves, we seemed like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. Stop. Do you see the change that's taken place in just a few moments? Here they're privately talking to Moses, and they say, Moses, it's a beautiful land. It's flowing with milk and honey. We're concerned, though. There's some tall people over there. But when Caleb says, it's time to go into action, God's called us to this day. Let's go up and overcome this land that God's called us to. We are going to knock these Canaanites out. They're an evil people, and God's going to use us as his instrument of righteousness, and we're going to take the land that was promised to our forefathers. What do the other ten say? There's one more. We'll get to him. What do ten of these guys say? No. We can't go up there. This land devours its inhabitants. Huh? Didn't they just show everybody the grapes? Look at the grapes. They're beautiful. This land devours its inhabitants. And now the tall people, the descendants of Anak, what have they become? They've become the descendants of the Nephilim, demon giants. And they say, where do you get that? Read in your study notes. The point is, is that the Nephilim were an illusion all the way back to Genesis chapter 6. And they're saying that they're not just tall. There are demon giants in Canaan that we would have to fight if we went there. And then the ultimate use of hyperbole, we're like grasshoppers to them. Can you imagine this? The fear that was driving these guys. We don't want to go there. This is terrifying. So let's see what happens. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And the Israelites complained against Moses and the chief priest Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we have died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into the land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones, they'll become booty. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let's choose a captain and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly and the congregation of the Israelites. 
and Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to the congregation of the Israelites, the land that we went through as spies is exceedingly good land. And if the Lord is pleased with us, he'll bring us into the land. He'll give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land. They are no more than bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Boy, at that moment, wouldn't you be ready to go? Yeah. You want to be on Caleb's basketball team. But look at verse 10. But the whole congregation threatened to stone them because that was reasonable. How many of you know the result of this whole thing? You grew up in church, you read these stories, you watched the Veggie Tales about it. Yeah. You know what God says in that moment to Moses? He says, You know what, Moses, I'm going to start over. I, I, I made these people a people out of nothing, and they rebelled again and again and again. I'm going to just wipe these guys out. I'll go find some other people to make mine and through which salvation history will come. Moses says, please, Lord, don't do that. Please forgive them. And the Lord in his grace and mercy says, you know what, you're right. I'm going to forgive them. But none of this generation is going to see the promised land. Those children that they were concerned about being captured and becoming slaves, they'll take the promised land. But this generation who whined and cried and rebelled and listened to lies, they're not going to get in. Ah. One of the most stinky stories of Scripture, is it not? Isn't it incredible mob mentality and how fear can take over and ruin things? I was listening to one of your favorite TV preachers the other night, somebody that some of you make fun of. I particularly enjoyed his sermon. And he was, after I'd written this sermon, he was preaching particularly about Caleb. His sermon was on Caleb. And he said, could you imagine how frustrating this must have been? for Caleb and for Joshua, because they had to wait nearly 40 more years before they got to go into the promised land. Only Caleb and Joshua of that generation lived long enough to make it in. Everybody else died in the wilderness. How frustrating. You don't get to see your dream realized because of the fear of a few. I want to talk today about five hallmarks of fear. You might want to write these down in your notes today. Five hallmarks of fear. Five symptoms, if you will, of fear. I want to tell you before we start, they are not an exhaustive list. I know that immediately after the sermon, someone could come at me and say, Pastor Matt, here's another hallmark of fear that you missed. I know that. There there are many hallmarks of fear. There are many symptoms of fear. These are five that I'm taking from the text today that I think are important for us to look at because they'll help us to diagnose the symptoms of fear. They'll help us to understand when we're fearful so that we can begin to overcome it by our faith in Christ. Number one, fear starts small. Ten people, ten men infected a warrior group of 600,000. Ten folks came back and said, no, we shouldn't do that. And it infected people. Fear is so contagious, is it not? And I don't know why it is, but we sometimes as human beings... We resonate with fear sometimes more than we resonate with faith. Because when somebody comes up and says, you know what, we're going to do this and we're going to do it in the name of the Lord, we're going to get it done, and somebody else goes, no, that's a really bad idea, we should not do that, we are so much more inclined to go, yeah, 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 that is a bad idea, bad, bad idea. 
there's something in our human nature, something of our fallen selves that likes to respond to the naysayers more than we like to respond by the faithsayers. We, we, we like to be naysayers. Oh, we shouldn't do that. We can't do that. That's a bad idea. That was poorly, poorly managed. And Fear can be so contagious. And I want to tell you today, one of the beautiful things that we can do as Christian men and women is to flip the script when fear begins to take a group. We're the ones that can just insert one of God's promises in just a moment and say, you know what, I'm not going to go down that route. I believe that Jesus, dot, dot, dot. I believe that the Lord will, dot, dot, dot. And you don't say those things because you're some unreasonable, weird person. You say those things because you've seen God bring you through the Red Sea. You've seen God provide manna for you. You've seen God give you a hope and identity at Sinai. You've seen the works of God, and you know who he is. And so instead of letting some people who are full of fear control the outcome of a group situation, we can be people who speak life and hope and light and faith into the situation. One of the most beautiful things that we can do as people who have been filled by the Holy Spirit is to be so, so influenced by the Holy Spirit that when fear begins to take root in a group, we can still be a person of faith. We can still be a Caleb and a Joshua. And though Caleb and Joshua were not able to flip the script that day, it is our goal to flip the script day by day and start inserting life and hope and faith into situations. Fear starts small. You need to be someone who observes when somebody is operating in fear and taking your beloved group, unit, church in the direction of fear. The amazing thing about these folks who are about to go into the promised land is they always knew what the end game was. They knew what they were there to do. They understood that they were going to the promised land. When they began to leave Egypt, they had been raised on the stories of getting into Canaan. They knew where they were going. And when the moment came for them to go hand in hand with God, they didn't do it. Isn't that interesting? They had seen the miracles of God. They'd seen the goodness of God. They'd been trained. They were ready to go. I was reading an article just this week, in, and it, it was an older article from 2004 in a publication called Military Review. It was done by a, a major in the U.S. Army who was talking about fear and its effects on unit morale and, and how people fight in battle. And he said there's really three things that can help you negate fear. He said the first thing that you have to have is proper training in simulated environments. In essence, you need to to be trained and know that you can succeed in environments like the ones that you're going to be fighting in. Well, the Israelites had had that. They defeated the Amalekites. So they'd already had that. I said the second thing you really need is leadership who has proven themselves faithful and that they can trust. Now, I'm paraphrasing the article. Military Review 2004, Gregory Dadis. Look it up yourself. I'm paraphrasing. So he says the second thing is they need a good leader who's shown that he's got leadership potential. Moses had been the agent with God of their deliverance from slavery. Did you think he was a decent leader? I mean, this is incredible. This is the first emancipation proclamation, at least that I know of, in the history of the world. And he took millions of people with him out of Egypt. He was a good leader. He was worth being followed. 
And then third, they need a group identity. They need something that bonds them. And not only had the bonds of slavery bonded them together as a people group, not only had their collective history of being the children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob bonded them together, not only had their amazing experiences of crossing the Red Sea and defeating the Amalekites and seeing God's provision of water and food, and then God coming down on the mountain at Sinai and giving them a collective identity as a people, they had all the bonds and unit strength together that they needed. They had all the things that should have negated their fear but when called to partner with God in the end game they shrunk back they shrunk back why did they shrink back well they shrunk back because number one they let fear infect them two fear feeds on lies they started to believe lies Wasn't there anyone in the congregation that day who says, yes, hold on a minute. This land that devours its people, where are those grapes from? Excuse me. Hold on, guys. Why would you bring us that beautiful cluster of grapes, this massive cluster of grapes that all of us can see? If it's really a bad land, I don't understand. Hold on a minute. Was there not one discerning person in the camp who could say, hold on a minute, God's promised this to us. Is it really a bad land? If it's such a bad land, why do the Canaanites want to keep it? Why haven't they moved out yet? Where is reason? Reason is gone because lies are being told. And we've already talked about what the lies were. This land devours its inhabitants. So in essence, God's brought you to a place that stinks. This stinks. This stinks. God can't bring any good out of this place that he's brought us to. And second, what do they say? There's giants there. The people there are giants. We can't go in there. There's giants. There's giants. And they're terrified because there's giants. See, God could defeat the most powerful empire in the world in Egypt, but he certainly couldn't defeat the Canaanites and their tall people. Right? The Canaanites and their tall folks, the long-necked ones, (laughs) God can't accomplish that. He could drown the entire army of Pharaoh in one fell swoop, but taking on the tall people in Canaan, not going to happen. It's a lie. And we sometimes feed on the lies of negative people. Sometimes feed on the lies of negative people. You don't have the skill, you don't have the money, you don't have the time, you don't have the talent. You can't do that. So why even try? Sometimes the negative people is ourselves. I don't have the skill, I don't have the time, I don't have the talent, I don't have the ability. I I can't go in there and fight that battle. And all the while, God's saying, I didn't ask you to go in there and fight that battle. I asked you to accompany me. Don't buy into the lie. Don't buy into the lie. Number three, fear questions God's goodness. Take a look at verse three of chapter 14. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? What a great question. Could you imagine if that question were asked in a reverse way? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? They're just asking the question the wrong way. They're asking it from a negative perspective, aren't they? If they were to ask that from a positive perspective, they go, no, God wouldn't do that. God's brought us this far. Why wouldn't he bring us the rest of the way? 
But what are they doing here? They're questioning God's goodness. God, you have brought us this far. You provided for us this far. You've done miracles for us this far. You've delivered us from slavery this far. But I think you're going to stop now. I don't really think you're good. I don't really think you're good. Fear causes us to question God's goodness and go, I don't know, God. I don't know. I don't know. And that's what they were saying today. Why, or that day, why would the Lord bring us all this way to fall by the sword? And here they have some really legitimate fears. How terrifying it must have been to go into battle and know in the baggage train is your wife and kids. That's scary. That's a legitimate fear. What if we're routed? What if they flank us? What if they come around the outsides and go after our wife and kids? That's a legitimate fear. Nobody's saying that the conquest of Canaan was going to be easy. We're only saying that God had brought them thus far. Why wouldn't they trust him just a little bit further? And I ask you today, once again, as we turn these tables and look at ourselves, God has brought us so far. Why would he not take care of us when we step out and partner with him in faith in what he's called us to? Why would we allow fear to rule and reign over us? Number four. Fear causes us to despise God's leadership. Fear causes us to despise God's leadership. What were they ready to do? Number one, they were ready to stone two of the leaders of Israel and Caleb and Joshua. Did you catch that? They were ready to stone Caleb and Joshua. Oh, and you know Moses, the one who God had used to be their deliverer? They were going to scrap him, and they were going to get one of these brilliant guys to take him back to Egypt because slavery is so great. See, fear not only causes us to despise leadership, it causes us to despise visionary leadership. And fear also causes us to covet unimaginative negative leadership. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hitch my wagons to this negative guy who's going to go back to Egypt. Who of you wants to be that guy? But that's what happens when groups buy into fear. They want to be with Captain Negativity not the leader that God has appointed. Fear causes us to grab hold of that negative person and their negative sentiments in order that we might not accomplish what God has called us to accomplish. And number five, fear causes us to do irrational violence to others and ourselves. It was completely irrational for them to want to stone Caleb and Joshua that day. It was completely irrational, but their fear drove them. And sometimes when fear is driving people, they will do the worst things to others. And in essence, they also did the worst things to themselves because they secured their heritage as the people who died in the wilderness. I mean, look at how irrational that was, their thought process. God has brought us thus far. We're standing on the doorstep of the promised land. Let's go back to Egypt That's crazy talk. But Egypt was what they knew. Egypt was what they knew. If they didn't risk in this moment, they could go back to a place where they would lose everything but have to risk nothing. Isn't that a good exchange? You can take a step out and risk and accomplish great things, or you can choose not to risk and go back and lose everything, but at least you didn't have to risk. 
And the hard thing about this is I, I, I don't want to be too hard on the Israelite people that day because in any kind of group, in any kind of situation like this, we could have been the same way. But I, I, I'm struck by the moment that God said, all right, I've done all this for you. I've delivered you. I sent you a deliverer. I delivered you. I got you through the Red Sea. I helped you defeat the Amalekites. You didn't seek that battle. It came to you. I gave you a national identity as a people. I gave you food. I gave you water. I gave you uh, the law. I have made you a people. You're ready to go. You've got good leadership. You've got good judges. You've got uh, an entire identity as a nation. It's time for us to go. Now grab my hand and let's do it. And they said no. They said no. God says, grab my hand. It's time to go. They said no. They had all the training, they had all the equipping, they had all the experience, they had all, every reason to trust in God. But when God said, grab my hand, it's time to risk, they said, no, we won't do that. We won't do that. God desires very much that when he holds out his hand to us that we take it. And God arranges our life circumstances that when he does, we should be going, yes, Lord, let's go. He does that. He wants each and every one of us to grab his hand and take it and begin to walk into the promises that he has for us. We have to decide in that moment whether we're going to trust God or fear the risk. You know, it's a beautiful thing that God has done. He has made us part of his church universal. Men and women who are here because men and women risked much by taking the hand of God and stepping out in faith. And you know what, there's rational fear when we think about the church of God progressing to the place that it's supposed to go. It's rational to wonder what our future is going to be in a world that mocks and reviles our Savior. It's rational to think that many of us could pay a very heavy price for serving him at the moment that he asked for our hand. Because the truth is, when he asked for the Israelites' hand that day, not everybody was going to come back alive. Not everybody was going to avoid getting wounded not everybody was going to make it but god's will was going to be done and his salvation history for humanity was going to be moved forward by their obedience and i'm not here to tell you and paint some rosy picture that every time that we take god's hand in risk that he's just going to make it peaches and cream and rosy as can be that doesn't mean that but it does mean that we get to take part in the awesome meta-narrative that god has for this world by which he redeems and saves human beings by the agency of working with trusting human beings. He wants us to join him in these tasks. I think of the way this church was founded 31 years ago. It's sort of funny when you hear the stories because the people who funded and built this church were all parents of young children. And I thought about how that would play today if perhaps we were to say, let's go to another location and begin to build a church. And the majority of us who are gonna fundraise and fund and put the manual labor in to get this job done, we're gonna build this place. All of us have young kids to take care of. Could you imagine the potential for rebellion in that moment? We have young kids. The fact that we have young kids means we have no money. We can't build a church right? Wouldn't that be the rational fear of rational people? We don't have the time. We don't have the money. 
We don't necessarily have the talent or the skills to fundraise and buy a property and build a church. We can't do that. Yet we stand in a property that was built that way. We're we're here at 3833 Hudson Drive because people went, you know what, there's a lot of risk involved in that. Yeah, I think God's calling us to do it. We should do it. Now, I'm not saying that we're going to go plant a church tomorrow. What I'm saying is, is when God calls you to do something, he gives you the strength to do it. He gives you the time to do it. He gives you the money to do it. And even when you're going, I don't think we have it, he does. He does. And granted, these people weren't the warrior-like people of the ancient world. They weren't the strongest people who had ever lived. They didn't have lots of experience. They didn't have a ton of weapons, but God was with them. And he had proved himself time and again. So even though it was perfectly rational to have the fears, it was perfectly reasonable to assume that God would get the job done. And I want to tell you today, there are so many aspects of our lives where it's perfectly rational to have the fear, but it's perfectly reasonable to assume that God is going to make it happen. And so I look at you today, and I don't have some iron in the fire that I'm trying to tell you not to fear. This is not a sermon by manipulation. I'm not going to ask you to fund my jet next week. It's not that at all. But I'm going to ask us to consider if we're being driven by fear or being driven by faith. And I'm going to ask us when there's moments that God tells us to risk that we are driven by faith and not by fear. Do I ask you this because we're perfectly rational and reasonable people? Uh, Maybe. But more importantly, I ask you this because it's what Christ has called us to. And the beautiful thing about even the book of Hebrews, and I I have a scripture here that I want to read to sort of close with today. The beautiful thing about the book of Hebrews is it talks a lot about how Moses and Aaron were one thing, but Christ is another. And following Moses and Aaron, that was pretty special, but following Jesus Christ is another. Putting your confidence in Moses and Aaron, that's great, but putting your confidence in the Son of God, that's another. You don't have to turn there, it'll be up on the screen. But Hebrews talks all about this comparison of those people in the wilderness and us today, starting in chapter 3. But verse 10, or chapter 10, brings us to a place where it says, do not, this is verse 35, do not therefore abandon that confidence of yours. It brings a great reward. For you need endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, the one who is coming will come, and he will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. My soul takes no pleasure in anyone who shrinks back, but we are not among those who shrink back and so are lost. We're among those who have faith and so are saved. Christ Jesus has done all the work for us. Sin and death have been defeated. His spirit, as we talked about during communion, has been unleashed. Will we partner with him until the day that he comes? Will we put our confidence in him until the day that he comes? Will we trust that we have not been called out to create the kingdom of Israel, but we have been called to something even greater 
we have been called out to partner with God in the creation of the kingdom of the heavens. We have such a higher calling than they did that day. And we have the spirit of Christ living inside of us to make it a reality. Will we step out in faith with our confidence in Christ, not in our collective power, not in our collective ability, not in our collective talent, not in our collective skill, not in our collective time, and not in our collective treasure, but will we trust in Jesus Christ that he has placed in us the ability to win souls for the kingdom of God? Will we trust him for that? Will we risk for that? Will we risk for that? Will we put our lives on the line? The song that Chelsea sang was all about that. The the song that we sang before communion, all about that. Will we put our lives on the line and take the hand of Christ and step forward in faith? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your word to us today. The book of Hebrews, the book of 2 Corinthians remind us that these people who failed that day were designed, Lord, to help us not to fail. Were designed for us to look at their symptoms of fear and say, God, not us, we have Jesus. So Lord, today we put our confidence and our trust in you. We pray, Lord, that the one who began a good work in us We'll see it through to completion until that great day of Christ Jesus. We pray, Lord, that we as a church would not shrink back on the day that you call us to take your hand. But Lord, like so many generations of Christians and so many generations of victory lifers before us, we'd take your hand. We'd step out in faith. And we'd risk everything promise of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that that would be us today. I'm going to ask our elders to step into the aisle today. We want to give you, before we close today, some time to pray. If you've been struck by this message today and God's speaking to you, God's speaking a specific message to you, I'd ask you to come and pray today and ask God to meet you in this place. And also today, if you have physical need, if you have emotional need, if you need God to meet you in this place, and according to James, the fifth chapter, you'd like to pray and ask God to meet you here. We want to give you that opportunity. Our service does not close until you've met with God. So today, whether you're responding to the message or you're coming for our prayer time, whether you're coming just to speak to God and you want to make a move towards him today, I'm just going to invite you to come. You have a need in your physical body? Come. Be anointed with oil today. Allow the elders to pray for you. You want to respond to the message today? Be anointed with oil today. Allow the elders to pray for you. You're praying for salvation of a loved one? Why don't you come? Allow the elders to pray for you. This is the moment to bring your needs and your concerns before God today. We just want to do that before we leave this place. This is not secondary to the message. It's a compliment to it. Lord to work in your life today. Take this time.
you're still in the congregation today, you see someone that you feel called to pray for, we just invite you to come and lay a hand on their shoulder, begin to lift them up to the Lord, use this time to be the body of Christ. Jesus, today we thank you that you still speak. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you still move. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you still heal. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have called us out to work with you in your kingdom. Lord, today by praying in this altar, we're saying, God, we need you. We're not going to continue in our own strength, and we can't. We need you to step in, and we need you to do the miraculous. We need you to step in and we need you to heal. We need you to step in and we need you to provide. Lord, we need you to step in and we need you to give strength or wisdom. We need you to give direction today, Lord Jesus. We seek you today because we're not a church that just wants to, wants to hear but not trust. Lord, we trust you today. We honor you today with our trust. And we're responding to your call that we would knock and we would ask and we would seek of the Lord Jesus Christ and that you would meet us in our circumstance, that you by your Holy Spirit would come right to the place that we're at and touch our hearts, touch our lives, redeem and make things new. Lord, I pray for the person who's come here today for physical healing. Lord, I pray that you would touch them today. Do the miraculous in their body. May the Holy Spirit of God come upon them in power right now in Jesus' name. Touch them. Heal them. Display your power, Lord God, in our lives. Help us to know once more that you are powerful and strong and mighty, and you can save, Lord Jesus. For the one who's come today because they have concerns for loved ones and family, that that they don't know what to do, they've come to the end of their rope, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be the healer, the guide, and the restorer in the lives of their loved ones. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would call back wayward sons and daughters, wayward brothers and sisters, that you would woo them by the power of your Holy Spirit, that the lost sheep of our families would be found by you in Jesus' name. Touch them today, Lord God. Call them back today, Lord God. Do the miraculous today, Lord God, that we might see your mighty power displayed. Lord, we pray for those today who need your powerful provision. We pray, Lord, today that you will provide. You are so faithful, God to provide every need according to your riches, according to your glory. So Lord, I pray for those who need of you today, whether it's financial, whether it's wisdom, whether it's direction. Lord, I pray that you would give it and you would pour it out on your people today. God, I pray that you would step in and pour out your provision in this place today. Lord, you give abundantly and we trust your abundance in this place. And for those today who are here because they're responding to the message and they know, Lord, that perhaps they've been operating in fear and not in faith. Perhaps they've been listening to the naysayers. Perhaps they've been saying it can't be done. Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus that you will flip the script today. We pray today that you will help us, Lord, to step out in faith. Help us, Lord, to stop fearing and help us, Lord, to have the faith that you have a bright and redeemed tomorrow. Lord, I pray that you would do that for your people today. Would you flip the script from fear to faith? 
And would you help us to trust your promises? They are true, and they will be so. We trust you today, Lord Jesus. We know you have a good future, a good hope for us today. I'm going to ask everybody in this place to stand. Lord Jesus, we thank you today. We thank you today that you are here for us and that you have also called us out to take us from the mundane to the miraculous, to take us from what our lives once were to the glorious, abundant life that you have for us in the future. We pray, Lord, that until that day comes, we would have faith and trust in you, that you will do exceedingly more than we could ask for or imagine, and that you have the power to do those things. I pray that you would make of us a people of faith. May we not be people who just look to be more courageous. May we be people who look to the life-giving name of Jesus Christ as our source for everything. And I pray, Lord, as we go from this place today, we will go moved by your spirit, ready to step out and grab your hand to affect this world, not for the kingdom of Israel, but for the kingdom of God. Dismiss us from this place now with your abundant blessing and use us mightily in your kingdom, we pray.